Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is half an hour of science on your radio. Thank you for being with us. And this week on the show, I am going to be talking about something that I've really never thought about that much before. Is fruit sterile or is there bacteria in it? I'm going to say there is bacteria. No, hang on. There is. No, wait, there is. Sometimes. <laughs> well, there's been some very interesting research come out looking at where the bacteria in fruit is, in specifically in apples. Yeah. I know. It's not something I ever would have thought about, but it's more interesting than I imagined. Oh, good. So, stay tuned so for stay a story tuned. that's more interesting than they might think. <laughs> Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, I I don't want to I don't want to try and and say that I've got something more exciting than uh, bacteria than in ba- fruit in fruit. Yeah, but I'm talking about planetary extinction and death from above. Okay, well, you know, I mean, a whole planet can exist inside a piece of fruit. But anyway, whoa, you blew my mind. I then. know, right? Yeah. Now, um, so last week, Jacinta told us about meteorites and the differences between meteors and asteroids and comets and those sort of things. Well, these heavenly bodies have been in the news once again because an asteroid just missed the Earth the other day. Yes, and we didn't even know about it until minutes before. Yeah. So it wasn't even time enough to call Bruce Willis. And try and get him to fix it. Let alone send him up with a nuke, right? No, no time. No. So I'm going to be looking at uh, at what exactly happened there, what what went right, what went wrong, and whether we should all panic. Great. So just don't panic just yet. Just wait for a bit to (laughs) find out. Wait till your story and then panic. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? If the bacteria don't get you, the asteroids will. (laughs) (laughs) Stu. Well, I'm talking about liquid hot magnets. Well, not hot magnets, but liquid magnets. Liquid Someone's actually magnets. managed to make a magnet out of a liquid, which mm. has amazing potential applications. I never even thought about a liquid magnet. Well, they didn't that. really know it was possible up until just the last couple of weeks, really. So, uh, yeah, I'll explain how did they figure that out and why is that an interesting thing and why why do normal magnets work as well, just briefly, because Chris has already well and truly covered that area. Out of all of our stories, I don't think the liquid magnets are going to kill anyone, as far as I know. Great. I've seen Terminator 2, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Okay, well, sorry, maybe oh, maybe they're all deadly stories, let's be honest. Deadly stories coming up on with the show. All right, so would you say there is a lot of bacteria on an apple? On the surface of an apple? In an apple, contained within the realm of apple. Mm. We're talking the fruit apple, aren't we? Yeah, we're talking the the fruit apple. Not the computer company. No, they're full of germs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Whoa. Burn, stew burns. (laughs) I don't know. It depends what part of the apple you're looking at, probably. Yeah, okay. Mm. Well, if you had to take a guess, um, where would... 
Where would the bacteria be? More on the skin, I would imagine, because it's exposed to the outside world and this, which is dirty, as we all know. Yeah. We live there. Yeah. I mean, thinking about sort of like the stem, yep. um, the peel, uh-huh. the flesh, mm-hmm. the seeds, uh-huh. and uh, the, the calyx, okay. which is that brown fluffy bit at the bottom of the apple. That's called a calyx, everyone, oh, just by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I say calyx, but. Oh, calyx. calyx, if you like. All oh, right, okay, we got the... No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you say calyx, I say calyx. No, I say calyx. You said <laughs> it wrong. Anyway, so you reckon the the skin, yeah? I reckon the skin, yeah, yeah. the outside bit. Yeah, and Stu's like... Well, because... Stu reckons the, the calyx. The inside of the apple is kind of hollow. Mm. So where the seeds are, there's mm. a bit of space in there that there could be something lurking. Ooh. But how would it get in there? Well, that's a good question. Okay. Okay. So a new study recently published in Frontiers of Microbiology has gone ahead and quantified the diversity and quantity of bacteria in different parts of the apple. Oh, what a relief. As you do. (laughs) Burning Um, questions and apple production. (laughs) Well, they found that the vast majority of bacteria are found in the seeds. Say what? I know. Quite surprising. And I'm not talking like, you know, 10 bacteria. Over 100 million bacteria were found in the seeds of the apple. So around 80% of the total bacteria. It's quite interesting, interesting, isn't it? Not what you would expect. I thought it would be the skin as well. Alas, it is the seeds. I wonder how they they form. Like, you know, because she was talking about how there's a space inside. You know, maybe they... Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. The flesh grows after that space has been created. This sort of started me thinking sort of are bacteria present in high quantities in seeds in general? Is this just a thing around apples? There's a little bit of research around this. So what we know in 1976, a paper was published on bacteria in ovules and seeds, um, highlighting they found in around 30% of seeds tested contained a lot of bacteria. Different species? Different species of seeds. Yeah, yeah. Not apples, but other different fruits and seeds. And found that bacteria can enter the seeds in a number of different ways, either through the vascular system of the plant that connects and brings nutrients into the seeds or through the hylus, which is the point of attachment to the seed. So, ah. yeah, or through other markings or scars in the in the seeds. So I guess that makes sense because plants can get bacterial infections and so the plant is just full of bacteria potentially. So yeah. that would be one way that they could just transfer to the to the seeds. I just assumed that seeds were some sort of sterile zone, but no. Okay, my next question to you is when you eat an apple, do you eat it all or do you just eat um, the skin and the flesh. Well, I'm not, I'm not an animal, so I stop at the <laughs> – I don't eat the core and the seeds. You don't? No. Or the calyx. I don't eat the calyx. <laughs> you don't the eat the calyx? Yeah, right. No, I don't eat the calyx or the stalk either. No. I leave that. I I ate the stalk. I went through a period where I ate it all, including the stalk. Oh. It was, it was, it was a dark time in my life. Did other kids at school poke fun at you for that? Or Yeah, that's why I stopped. <laughs> it's like, watch it, watch class, you'll eat anything. <laughs> I mean, so if you eat the core, it means you're eating all this bacteria, right? Mm. But um, are, they, are they necessarily bad bacteria? They're like they're apple bacteria. Maybe they're not bad bacteria. Y- indeed, indeed. Does it matter if you're throwing yeah. away potentially 90 million bacteria? It obviously has to do with the type of bacteria. What the researchers found out was – and 
a potential answer to that question, and it has to do with whether the apple was grown organically or whether it was grown commercially. So they look specifically at one variety of apple, the Arlet apple, uh, which is an apple, I guess, in Austria. I've never heard of the Arlet apple in, um, no. well, in Australia. The, the, the number of commercial apple varieties in Australia is very small. There's only about eight or nine different varieties. But really? Is that because Big Apple's keeping the number well, of apples Well, pretty much the apples that are grown transport well. That's pretty much the reason uh, that apples are grown. So we can export them? Well, so we can transport them on trucks and pick them oh, and yeah, they right. don't get damaged mm. on the way to the supermarket. Yeah. Yeah, right. 45% of apples grown in Australia are grown in Victoria. Just hashtag Apple Facts. Everyone. Around Harcourt. What, whatever happened to Tasmania's <laughs> contribution? They used yeah. to be the Apple Isle. Yeah, well, it's only like 10 to 15%. Oh, they're slipping. Yeah. Actually, New South Wales is after Victoria, so. They are both bigger states than Tasmania. That's so it's true. Really quite That's an unfair true. comparison. Anyway, the researchers analysed these two apples, so um, an organically managed islet apple and a commercially grown apple that um, would use, you know, pesticides and whatnot. And from these apples, they analysed the ribosomal RNA, which is a gene sequence often used to figure out bacterial relationships. Um, and so you use this gene sequence to work out the presence of certain bacterial families. And what they found was that the organic apples harbour a significantly more diverse, more even and distinct bacterial community compared to conventional commercially grown apples. Right. So suggesting that this diversity from the organic apple having, you know, so many different species of bacteria could limit overgrowth of any one bacterial species. So, you know, they have a nice diverse microbiome within their seeds. Still, one of the one of the tests that I mental tests that I have with these kind of things is have you ever heard of anyone getting sick from eating an apple? Well, how do you know that I mean, oh, you don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, interestingly, they found that specific groups of bacteria known for affecting human health such as Shigella um, were found in most conventional apple samples, but none of the organic apple samples. Okay. And beneficial bacteria such as Electobacilli of probiotic fame, as you would know, okay. um, were found in organic apples, but not in the conventional apples. So when the, they... the flip side of that is that people often get sick from eating organically grown uh, salad greens and green leafy vegetables, which are often uh, covered in listeria. So... Oh, well, there you go. It depends what you're eating. Depends Uh, what you're eating. Absolutely. Yeah, and also if you're not eating the seeds where all of this diversity is, Mm. does it really matter? Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know. I have Um, a a question. Um, Considering that apples keep the doctors away, uh, if you do get bacterial infection from an apple, (laughs) what are your options? (laughs) Stop eating them for a day and then you can go to the doctor. Oh, that's true. Yeah, there you go. Interestingly, though, on the point of taste, so the researchers also suggested that there could be a difference in taste because they found uh, methylobacterium in some of the organic apples. So this methylobacterium is known to enhance the biosynthesis of strawberry flavour compounds significantly more um, in the organic apples, and it was found on the peel peel of these organic oh. apples compared to the conventional apples. But the thing is, if, if you were going to test whether the taste of apples was better, wouldn't you feed them to people and ask them <laughs> which apples taste rather than searching for methylobacteria? <laughs> that's, that's for future research. Yeah, okay. okay. That's for future research. 
Anyway, so there you go. Apples have more bacteria than I ever imagined. Now, you might be asking why this is important. I mean, fair enough. Um, But it turns out a lot was known about fungal diversity in apples, um, but not so much about bacteria. And considering that um, apples are often eaten raw and fruit is probably one of the few uncooked foods that contribute to your gut microbiome, um, it could have implications. Was this study funded by it, Big, Big <laughs> Apple Pie? It trying was, to get people to eat cooked apples It all was the time. not funded by Big <laughs> Apple Pie and um, and they did not have any conflicts of interest to declare. So there was there was no um, so Big Stu, Grandma's Apple Pie. Stu, how do you like them apples? Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and we have more planetary extinction news that you can't expect from us. Um, so, yeah, the Earth had a... This, this planet? This planet. Oh, yeah, because the Earth had a near miss from an asteroid last Thursday. Now, it wasn't exactly extinction. I should be. I should not exaggerate. Um, this was what they call a city killer. Um, so it would do about as much damage as like a large nuclear explosion. So, yeah, not planetary extinction, but still not the kind of thing you want falling on your head. Just exactly. the kind of thing that would totally ruin your Thursday. It would, exactly. <laughs> but however, look, it does have a nice name, this asteroid. They call it Asteroid 2019 OK. Is that because we're all is OK? Is everyone <laughs> OK? So this asteroid is believed to be about around about 100 metres across. The exact size isn't certain. It came within 72,500 kilometres of Earth, which sounds like a long way, but considering the moon is 385,000 kilometres away, oh it is much, much closer than the moon. About a fifth of the distance, I suppose you can wow. say. Wow. Mm, yeah. Mm. So it was discovered by a Brazilian asteroid survey called SONEAR, S-O-N-E-A-R, and it was announced, the discovery was announced just hours before it arrived in our neighbourhood. Now, that put, seems like too short a time. It is. It is a short time. It wow. Is a short time. Yeah. Now, okay. So, yeah, these. It is a worry. These kind of things. Now, this is why we have asteroid surveys like Sonia to look out for these kind of things. There's also a bunch of other ones around the world Thanks as well. Thanks, science for Sonia. Exactly. So, what they do is they basically use cameras attached to telescopes. So they're used for like fairly small telescopes. You can like see uh, a large patch of sky at, at once, and then they're basically taking multiple pictures and looking for anything that moves. Um, now, this asteroid 2019. Okay, it has an orbit that varies from the distance about Mars to around the distance of, of Venus from the Sun. So it's kind of an eccentric orbit. Um, but this asteroid, as I said, it's about 100 metres across. It's not that big. It's hard to spot until it gets close. And by then it's moving pretty fast. So you don't have much time to get a look at it. So this explains why it wasn't really spotted. I think there were some indications that it may have been seen earlier, but not enough to get a real fix on its orbit. And so, yeah, when they spotted it, it wasn't much time left to do anything about it. So not just that it was there, but no one could really tell it was moving towards us. Yeah, well, no one knew exactly the orbit that it was on, right. how, whether it was going to come close to us or not. So what would happen if something like this hit the Earth? Well, like I said, it's not a planet killer. It's not an extinction-level event like the, the one that supposedly, possibly did in the dinosaurs about 65 million years ago. That one was about... 50 kilometres wide, right, roughly okay. thereabouts, so much, much bigger. And this is, and um, like ranking these asteroids and how much damage they do, 
is totally dependent on how sort of like what their diameter is? It's also how what they're made of and how fast they're moving okay. as well. Yeah. So like another comparison I think of is in 2013 there was the Chelyabinsk meteor which struck Russia in 2013 where they exploded in the sky. Is that the one from that documentary Deep Impact? No, no, that was a bit earlier. This was the one that like blew up in the sky of the city of Chelyabinsk and smashed windows and stuff like that. Right. Um, that one was about 20 metres across. So this one is bigger than that. It's maybe more on the scale of the Tunguska event, which levelled about 2,000 square kilometres of Siberian forest in 1910. So, like I said, like a nuclear explosion, pretty much. Um, now, because the these asteroids, the bigger they are, the easier they are to find – um, the bigger ones you've got a good handle of generally. So uh, NASA and and assorted agencies reckon they've identified more than 90% of the asteroids that are over a kilometre in size. Still not 100%, but, you know, they're aiming for around 90% mark. Um, so they're doing that okay. In fact, you can actually look online. There's an automatically updated list that you can check called the Century Risk Table. It's run by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, you can see what the current risk level is from but- things. So, I mean, a kilometre across is going to impact and cause a lot more damage it's than going to cause a lot more damage. wiping out a city. Well, this is why I thought I would look. Let's, let's look at what this risk table to see what the, the current list Great. is. What are the notable entries on there? So, just give you a flavour of what the danger is to Love us. Love the risk table. Um, so, it, risk, it basically ranks them. It gives them a risk rating. It depends on their likelihood of hitting the Earth, but also how big they are. So, the highest risk rating is given to an asteroid called 29075. 1950 DA, or 1950 DA for short. Um, the reason it's the highest is because it is by far the biggest on this table. It's about 1.3 kilometres in diameter. So, sounds scary, I know. But this one only has about a 0.012% chance of hitting the Earth in the 29th century. So, it's got a slow, <laughs> small chance of hitting the Earth, and we've got 800 years to get ready okay, for it. Great. So, it's that kind of thing. Uh, the next on the list is an asteroid called 101955 Bennu. Uh, has a slightly higher ch- chance of hitting Earth this time in the 22nd century. This one is notable, though, because NASA has actually sent a probe called the OSIRIS-REx to collect samples from Bennu. So that'll help us find out what it's made of, which could perhaps give us an idea of what you can do about it. But also, it shows that we can actually reach and rendezvous with one of these things, should we need to. Other notable ones, triple nine four two Apophis. This one is 370 metres wide, and at one point it caused a lot of concern because someone had calculated that it might have a 2.7% chance of hitting the Earth on the 13th of April 2029. But that has recently been downgraded. Now it's just going to um, like miss us at a distance about 33,000 kilometres. which is closer close than the recent one. Closer than the recent one, but still is a miss. Yeah. It should be a spectacular show. Might, no, might, hit, might hit a satellite if we're lucky. But no, it's going to miss the Earth. I've calculated it's going to miss the Earth in, um, in 2029. Um, the most likely impact on the century table is one called 2018 VP1. It has a 0.4% chance of hitting the Earth on the 2nd of November 2020. But before you get too worried, this one is about two metres across. So Hit the Earth. Hit the Earth. <laughs> it's like that Simpsons episode with yeah. the little... <laughs> <laughs> what what would a two meter across asteroid? It would probably leave what sort of impact. Probably leave a little bit of debris, but like big fireball, you leave a bit of debris. But they wouldn't. It's yeah, yes. much smaller than the one that was hit Russia in twenty thirteen. So yeah, look, the point is we have a good handle on most of the big ones. Um, but what can we do even if we do know they're likely to hit us? Um, 
Armageddon, the movie Armageddon is not a great guide because blowing them up <laughs> with a nuclear weapon uh, would basically turn it from a bullet into shotgun pellets, the starters, yeah. uh, and they'd be radioactive shotgun pellets. So you maybe don't want to do that. So instead what you want to do is you want to get long enough warning uh, to either push it out of the way or you say the gravity of a large spacecraft to pull it out of the way. So we have you know, clearly the technology to rendezvous with asteroids. So we could, in theory, do this. You just have to obviously be very sure you've got your calculations right and you're not actually pushing it more towards... Pushing in the wrong direction. Exactly. I said left, you idiot. Exactly. (laughs) But, yeah, so there is still the worry that there'll be surprises like the asteroid 2019 okay in the future. But, you know, if we keep watching the skies, we keep these programs going, maybe future asteroids will be okay as well. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So, Chris, I know you've answered this question before. Uh, Magnets, how the heck do they work? Well, magnetic fields are generated by electric fields, so spinning... Uh, electric charges within atoms generate their magnetic fields and basically a matter of aligning them, which you can get in like a permanent magnet where all the little domains of aligned magnets line up and they all point in the same direction. So, yeah. But I, I'm pretty certain that requires a solid to have those domains yeah, all pointing in the same direction. Surely you yeah. need to be able to align And for them to stay domains. in the same position, yeah. surely, you'd think. Yeah. You would think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is all to do with the spin of electrons in certain substances. Uh, they spin around the atoms, and when you match up the spins of the electrons, you get the magnetic effects, which is that they have... Uh, a, po- a polar effect, basically. So one end is negatively charged, the other end is positively charged. And similar charges repel each other. And as the song says, opposites attract. So some materials like steel and iron and some other metals can be made into permanent magnets where they keep that polarity forever, mm-hmm. or more or less forever. So it's kind of like a crystal structure, isn't it? Yeah, the- that's right. Yeah. And they have to be held in that structure for that for yeah. the electrons to align because if it was not a solid sub, uh, substance, it wouldn't really make much sense for them to yeah, exactly. align. So you can get, you can get uh, disrupt the magnetism of even permanent magnets if you raise their temperature. Do you know what temperature it has to be raised to? It's the Curie temperature. Oh. There's actually a specific temperature for each metal oh. that you can magnetise. It was discovered by Pierre Curie. Yeah. Um, so basically, if you heat it up enough... Marie, wasn't he? Yeah. Okay. If you heat it up enough... The electrons get start behaving behaving chaotically because of the extra energy added by the heat. Yeah, because heat is just like jostling things around. Yeah, yeah it's just sort of is. they all get jostled out of place and then they start spinning in whatever direction they want. They get a um, bit antsy, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that actual temperature varies according to the substance. So iron has a Curie point of uh, 769.85 degrees Celsius. Iron oxide has a Curie point of 674.85, but something like chromium oxide, you can magnetise chromium oxide, but it loses its magnetism at 112.85 degrees Celsius. That's pathetic. So you can do that on the, do that on the stove in the kitchen if you exactly, wanted to. Exactly. Hardly anything. This is, why, this is why I never bother to, cr- to magnetise my chromium oxide. Yeah, no, it's, it's not worth the effort. No. You could just accidentally put it in the oven and it's yeah. done. Yeah. Um, so there are other materials that become magnetic in the presence of a magnetic field, but lose their magnetism when the field is removed. So aluminium becomes magnetic if it's in a magnetic field. 
Mm. Um, but you wouldn't be able to stick a magnet to an aluminium can. Because so this is diamagnetic, I think? Uh, yeah, there's, so there's um, diamagnetic uh, produces a magnetic field opposite to the applied oh, magnetic paramagnetic field. Then. I get that's paramagnetic confused. produces a, a complementary yep. uh, magnetic field. So My bad. Yeah, look, but there's, you know, there's all sorts of weird magnetism effects going on. Totally. Um, and you can induce them and, and get rid of them, and it's all, all over the place, really. But bo- all of these magnetic effects were thought to be related to the dense arrangement of atoms in solid substances. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've firmly established that it's yeah. impossible to make a liquid magnet, haven't we? Surely. Um, yeah. and, and you couldn't get the uniform spin required in other states of matter, say in a liquid or a gas or something like that. God, magnetic gas. But... Pull the other one. <laughs> um, but some physicists recently published a paper showing that they've been able to induce magnetism in what is effectively a liquid state. Amazing. Hang on. Wow. What? Amazing. Yeah. What is effectively? That's, that's wilder than bacteria inside an <laughs> apple. That is like the most craziest thing I've heard. All right, today. asteroid boy. <laughs> Pipe down. <laughs> so a Chinese researcher working at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California was using a 3D printer. 3D printers, what can't they do? <laughs> uh, to make tiny droplets of water containing iron oxide, which he then magnetized. Wow. So he induced magnetism in the iron oxide in the droplets of water. Uh, that's a known property of iron oxides. You can induce magnetism in them. They're so hang on, are these like, like nanoparticles of iron oxide? Or are they like dissolved somehow in the water? They're kind of nanoparticles of iron oxide in right. the water. Okay. So, so does that mean it's a liquid? Or it it's behaves a nano- as a liquid. <laughs> it's, a, it's a suspension. It's, it's a, a suspension. suspension. So he magnetized it and we know you've, you can do that with iron oxide. That's not a big surprise. Okay. But when he removed the droplets from the magnetic field, they kept spinning in unison. So they had become permanent magnets. And they could then float them around in other liquids and in, um, you know, move them around using external magnets and get oh, them wow. to do things in the other liquids. <laughs> what? So they are actually talking about uh, what they were calling soft robots, that they could potentially make soft robots that were controlled by magnetism. Like the Terminator 2. In whatever shape you wanted them to be, which is kind of a bit scary. The odd thing about this is that they don't really know why it works. Ah. So they've, they've reproduced it a number of times in their lab, but they can't exactly explain what's going on and why the iron oxide in this situation is retaining the magnetic effect. So they have been able to repeat the trick using a 3D printer. They can make tiny liquid drops um, that they can manipulate, less than a millimetre in size, and they've been able to make long cylinders of this substance as well. So there's these big, long tubes of this liquid magnet that they can pretty much mould into different shapes. Um, They might potentially, they're saying, might be used in uh, micro-machines or nano-machines. They'd be able to build things, you know, simple... Electric motors are basically just spinning magnets. So if you could do that on a very small scale, you could have tiny little electric motors, potentially. Um, and also, as with everything on a small scale, there's some potential that they could use it somehow in surgery of some description. They're always saying, we could use this to uh, deliver, you know, drugs to diseased <laughs> cells in people. Get and- a tiny scalpel that's inside <laughs> your your blood vessel. A magnetite. Yeah, well, yeah. potentially, yeah. Um, I guess the you know the uh, the the spin is coming out all over the place there, but uh, it's it's a pretty amazing. Is that a deliberate pun spin? And it's well, it's hard to put not put a positive spin on it, really. 
And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science, our uh, hmm, maybe less than deadly show. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at lostinscience one or on Facebook, Lost in Science on 3CR, or maybe just tune in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.